0: Um, continuing in our character studies of the disciples, talking about Matthew today. All right, Matthew. Many years ago, in what I often refer to as a former life, uh, I, was a, I worked for Pepsi-Cola and worked in many, many, many facets for Pepsi-Cola, but uh, my, last, my last gig with Pepsi was working on the route trucks, delivering pop to the stores, things like that. And... Um, there was this chain back in the day. I actually, I don't even know if it's still around in our area. My understanding is it came out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, some of you may remember it. Pick and save big, big, like box grocery store, that kind of thing. Yeah. Name, name sounds familiar. So um, when we would go into big stores like that, they would have what was called a, a, a receiver or backroom manager. So when we would bring Pop in, before we could take it out to the aisles and fill displays and all that kind of good stuff, it had to be checked in by this man or this woman, the receiver, backroom manager. And most of them were pretty good to work with, but not all of them. But most of them, but not all of them. And there was this one particular dude with pick and save, just annoyed the snot out of me. And to put it mildly, he was a bit of a jerk. He really was. Now, the thing with receivers and, and backroom managers is like they called the shots. And if they, so you'd wheel all your pop in right to the back room. And if they didn't want to check you in right away, They wouldn't check you in right away, and you just had to stand and wait. If they wanted to check in what we affectionately referred to as the bread bunnies, the the guys who drove the bread trucks, if they wanted to check in them before you, even though you got there before them, they could do it, depending on the day, that kind of a thing. So you were at their beck and call, and back in the day, how many of you remember 16-ounce returnable bottles? Remember the eight-packs? Yeah, like about six of us remember that. Yeah, and so when we would have to take, we couldn't take anything out of the store until they had checked us in. This guy, I don't know, he just, I, I think he took special joy and special delight in yanking my and my driver's chain whenever we came there. Did not care for the guy even a little bit. Didn't, once we got the pop in the store and we're putting up displays, all, everything was fine, but getting past him in and out was not something that I look forward to. Fast forward about 15 years. I was pastoring at the time and I was at a conference, a bunch of pastors and things like that. This is crazy, even as I'm telling you the story. I look in- into the crowd, dude, it's him. And I'm like, I could not wait to get a chance to talk to him. I'm like, um, like, why are you here? Like, What are you doing here? And so he proceeded to tell me how Jesus had like radically upended his life. Like got a hold of him. He was, he was living in some stuff and doing some stuff and... Like his best life now, kind of a thing, wasn't so hot, right? And so we got to talking, and, and he could see, he could see the shock and awe on my face. He could see the surprise on my face, and I'm, I'm sure my countenance, my facial expressions, that like, oh my gosh, if Jesus can save you, He can save everybody, anybody, kind of a thing, right? And and he basically com- conveyed back to me this sentiment, Bill. I'm just as surprised as you are. I'm just as surprised as you are. And I think if there's a line or a phrase that could fit today's text regarding Matthew, it would be that line. Matthew saying to like everybody, his tax collector friends, his tax-collecting sinners, um, the other disciples, dude, I am just as surprised as you are. So, um, you can see in the, 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 the next slide uh, where we're at. We're at uh, Matthew in that second slot, that second grouping of disciples. Bartholomew next week. I'm just as... If, if you were here last week, I threw a question out to us. And the question was this, if you remember. What social taboos am I willing to break in order to introduce others to Jesus? What social taboos am I willing to break in order to introduce others to Jesus? And I followed that up with, in my spheres of influence, where is my Samaria? Who are my Samaritans? Who are my tax collectors and sinners in my sphere of influence? So in the context of today's passage, Matthew chapter 9, we might, we might rephrase last week's question, what social taboos am I willing to break? in order to bring people to Jesus to this. What social taboos was Jesus willing to break in order to invite people to follow him? So before we get into into Matthew 9, I want to just, like I've been doing, just give a little bit of background on Matthew. Interestingly enough, in his own gospel... Matthew only mentions himself a couple of times. Once in the passage that we're going to walk through today in Matthew 9, and the only other time is what you just saw in the disciple listing where he lists himself among the 12 disciples. And that's interesting. I mean, Matthew is a chunk of change, right? The volume of words in his gospel, pretty significant. In Mark's gospel, Matthew calls or Mark calls Matthew, by his Jewish name, Levi, son of Alphaeus, which is interesting for at least a couple of reasons. Matthew was most likely from the tribe of Levi, which suggests that he was probably, probably well-versed in the Old Testament. We know that he wrote his gospel for a Jewish audience, and he includes more Old Testament, in Matthew's gospel. He includes more either allusions or direct quotations back to the Old Testament than Mark, Luke, and John combined. So his audience was overtly Jewish. Secondly, and I'm just, just, just by way of information, it's possible that Matthew may have been the brother of another disciple of uh, of the 12, James, son of Alphaeus. It's possible, not definitive, but it's possible that Matthew and James, Matthew, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Alphaeus, could have been brothers. Here's the little hiccup with that, though. Unlike we are told throughout the Gospels that James and John were brothers, and Andrew and uh, uh peter were brothers there's no reference in in the gospels anywhere to matthew and or levi the son of Alphaeus and james the son of Alphaeus being brothers but it's interesting nonetheless okay let's get to it let's get to what we all know matthew was a tax collector So if you're unaware of of all that that entailed, let me give some bullet points here because it's really important for the context of the story. Tax collectors were those who actually purchased or bought tax franchises from the Roman government and then extorted money from the people of Israel to A, feed the Roman treasury, feed the Roman coffers, And, B, to earn a living and then some to pad their own pockets. There was an unspoken agreement, unspoken agreement with the Roman emperor that tax collectors could assess whatever they could get, whatever fees they wanted and additional taxes that they could collect, of which this excess they were allowed to keep a percentage for themselves. So as a result, in effect, these guys were, were basically seen as traitors to their nation, which made them social outcasts, which made them religious outcasts, which meant they could not, and this was for us to say, well, you know what, you can't participate in the, uh, in the, in the, in the goings-on of the local church. It's, okay, I'll go to another one. Not so back in the day. If you, if you, in essence, in Jesus' time, were barred from the synagogue, that was massive. You were, in essence, barred from the communal life as a Jew. And communal life as a Jew was everything for a Jew. So I'm trying to paint a picture for us of 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 what Matthew may have been like, of what his best life now may have looked like. He was an outcast. He was the outcast of outcasts in Jewish society. Finally, as we'll see in a little bit, Matthew throws a dinner party at his home. We're going to read through that. Like a big dinner party, which suggests, shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, which suggests that he was, he was a man of pretty significant financial means. So, kind of from the world's perspective, he had some stuff, right? But did he really? Like, was he satisfied? I don't think so. And I think as time wore on, and he began, I'm trying to make a case, as he began to hear about this This controversial, doesn't do things by the book rabbi called Jesus. I think it piqued his interest. Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin at verse 9 and read through verse 13 and then walk through the verses. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I'm going to insert, for clarity's sake and for context, one verse from Luke, Luke chapter 5. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his house. Matthew doesn't give us that information. Uh, uh, Luke does, so I insert that in here. So, so Levi, Matthew, throws a party, man, like this is a big deal. Verse 10 of Matthew 9. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, "Um, what's the deal? What's up with that? Why does your teacher, why does your rabbi eat with... And you could just hear the words coming out of their mouth. Eat with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. There is so much going on in these few verses. Back to verse 9. As Jesus went on, from there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, said to him, follow me, got up and followed him. Two important questions. Question number one, what in the world, what in the world could account for Matthew? Like, boom, on the spot, quite literally, picking up and leaving everything behind to follow Jesus, Like, that doesn't happen, right? Wasn't Matthew living his best life now? He had money. He had a job. Yeah, he was excluded from the community, but who needs the Jews, right? What was it about Jesus and his message that Matthew found so compelling that he did what he did? These are all relevant questions to this follow me, and he got up and followed him. Allow me to suggest a couple of possibilities regarding that first question. What could account for Matthew picking up and leaving it all? First, highly, highly unlikely that this was a cold call. Here's what I mean by that. Highly, highly unlikely that this was either the first encounter or the first time that Matthew had heard anything about Jesus. Highly unlikely. Here's why. Here's why I say that. As a tax collector, Matthew would have been privy to much information, much gossip, much scuttlebutt from the, from the, from the well-traveled area that he happened to collect taxes in. Surely, surely it's plausible, probably probable, that Matthew had at least heard about this unconventional rabbi. Okay, so that's not a stretch at all. We might say that Matthew was in the know about many things, and part of those many things surely included this rabbi Jesus. Second, so somehow, someway, either, either, Matthew had previously met Jesus, or maybe, maybe in, in one of or some of Jesus' teachings, here's Matthew way, way, way in the back. Can you picture him leaning in, listening, 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 listening? Why? Because I suggest to you there must have been a fair amount of dissatisfaction with Matthew's best life now for him to all things considered. Jesus comes along, right? With all that background, he says, I'm in. He proved it, right? He left everything. Lucrative profession, nice house, all that kind of stuff. So what could account for Matthew's immediate response to leave it all? Not a cold call. Somehow, someway, he knew, like he knew about this Jesus. Secondly, second important question here. What does this say about Jesus? R.T. France, in his work, The Gospel of Matthew, puts it into context for us. For Jesus... To call such a man to follow him was a daring breach of etiquette, a calculated snub to conventional ideas of respectability. Strategic pause. Have you, if you're a Christian in your Jesus following life, have you figured that out by now? That you can't put Jesus in a box, right? Can we know some things about Jesus that are true? Of course we can. But just as soon as we we have that kind of figured out, he surprises us, does he not? He does stuff in our lives and around our lives, and we find ourselves saying, yeah, totally did not see that coming. Did not see that coming. Which ordinary people... No less than Pharisees might be expected. It just wasn't the Pharisees who were like, um, excuse me, what are you doing? Good Jewish rabbis don't do that. It wasn't just the Pharisees. We're going to talk a little bit about the disciples. What was going through their mind? And ordinary people, ordinary people saw the tax collectors and sinners as other thans and lesser thans. So this one is like massively breaking a social taboo. Fishermen may not have been high in the social scale, but at least they were not automatically morally and religiously suspect. But Matthew was. This is, this is not the way the script was supposed to go, right? But I can, I can serve a God like that. If I'm going to deem somebody worthy of my worship, I had better not, he had better not be like me. He had better fundamentally not be like me. Relatable somehow, some way for sure. But if he's like me, why would I wanna? If he's like you, why would you wanna? That doesn't make sense. In significant ways, if I'm going to deem somebody worthy of my worship, They had better be bigger, better, better than me in significant ways, dare I say, in otherworldly ways. And yet, not so far off that he's not relatable. Once again, Jesus willing to break social taboos in order to invite, that's how important it was to him. That's how important people are to him. In order to invite people to follow him. So Levi hosts a massive banquet for Jesus at his house. Verse 10. While Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus. <coughs> question. Like, this is obvious. Why did Matthew invite tax collectors and other sinners to his house? Audience response, question. Question. Because that's who he knew. Because that's who he knew. I'll never forget. It was literally just a few days, four or five days, after I had accepted Jesus' gracious invitation to follow him, Savior and Lord and all that entails, that I went up to a party in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is just a weird story. Went up to a party in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at my ex-girlfriend's house with all of my partying friends from school. Now, I had stopped going to school um, about a year earlier, but I had... Interesting thing with college profs. Like, when you don't show up for their class, they don't give you a good grade. So I flunked out of, of my last two semesters of college. And I thought, yeah, this is, I should probably do something different. So searching, 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 right? Just a few days earlier, I had, I had this, this had been in the works for a couple months, gonna be a big deal, looking forward to it. And all of a sudden, Jesus steps in and says, follow me. And so I did. And now I'm torn. Do I go up there? Do I not go up there? I know it's going I know what it's gonna entail. I know what's gonna happen. It's gonna be a massive party scene. I know. But I wanted. I desperately, because I I realized how desperately I needed Jesus. That I desperately wanted to introduce my partying friends to Jesus. Because that's who I knew. That was my crowd. That's who I ran with. That was Matthew's crowd. Tax collectors and sinners. That's who he ran with. So, hey, come and check out this unconventional rabbi. He, he does stuff. He says stuff. I don't, he's rocked my world. Why don't you check him out? Importantly in that culture, some of you may know this. To share a meal with people. To fellowship over food signified acceptance. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew what would, In that culture, they knew what was happening. That's why the Pharisees said what they said. Like, why is your rabbi accepting these people? We'll see in a little bit. They, say, they, don't, they don't say that to Jesus. They say it to the disciples. What's going on here? This doesn't happen. This is not not the way this works. Rabbis just don't do this. Good rabbis anyway. It was a big deal. Now, last part of verse 10, I left these three words off. And his disciples. Man, oh man, oh man. If I could say anything about this, as as far as Jesus' disciples are concerned, including you and including me as far as Jesus disciples are concerned including you and including me Jesus is a threat to life as we know it it's been said that he is good but he is not safe that's this rabbi that's this Jesus that's who I said yes to long long time ago that's who the disciples said yes to he's a threat to life as we know it he's good but he's not safe verse 11 so the Pharisees when the, by the way if you're entering into the, te, into the text like do you think do you think Matthew invited the Pharisees to this party I don't think so so what are they doing there well, they probably weren't inside, but they had heard about what was going on, so they somehow get a hold of the disciples, right? When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, "What?" these words are just dripping with nastiness. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice, no empathy, no sympathy, no repentance, only objectification, only dehumanization. Hear that well, feel that objectification and dehumanization. Those people. Jesus, if I I were to rephrase this, how could you even think about associating with those lesser thans? Right? If I'm being brutally honest in this moment, From time to time, man, it is so in me. I will find myself doing this without even thinking about it. It is so in me. I will objectify people. I will dehumanize people. I will treat them as lesser than without even thinking about it. That little nudge, right behind the scenes, the holy Spirit, really Bill? really? Is that what it means to follow jesus does this do these stories, Bill, have no Im- impact on you? Verses twelve and thirteen Jesus gets wind of it, right? Now, when Jesus heard this, he said. It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Speaking to the, to the Pharisees, certainly speaking to the disciples listening in, and I'm not sure where I land on this, but I wonder if part of this is a bit of a diss toward the Pharisees with, with what he's about to say because they should have known this. And part of this is his heart hurting for the Pharisees like go back to scripture and see what my father's heart here is it's not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick go and learn what this means I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners make the connection between those who are sick and sinners and put that together. Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who know they are broken and know they need grace. People who are looking for a help beyond themselves, outside of themselves because they have, they have gotten themselves to their best life now. And they're dissatisfied. Like, my best life now? Not so hot. My best thinking has got me to where I am today. And something's wrong. Something's out of place. Something's missing. Certainly my story. But that phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus points the Pharisees back to an Old Testament prophet, Hosea. Hosea 6, verse 6, but I'm going to give it some context. I'm going to walk through the first six verses of of Hosea because this is where Jesus directed the Pharisees back to. Hosea 6, 1 through 6. First three verses, Jesus, Jesus, the Lord is calling his people to repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down. He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Key word in this passage. The word, know. The Pharisees, and see if you catch the difference. The Pharisees knew God, but they didn't know God. You can have all the right mental assent correct. You can have all the doctrine correct. You can know God and miss God in your knowing. And that's where the Pharisees were at. Verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. This incredible renewing and refreshing is the picture that Hosea is painting. As the spring rains that water the earth verses 4 through 6 is a lament by God. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? In this context, Ephraim, uh, after the the tribes have been split apart, the 12 tribes, 10 to the north, 2 to the south, Ephraim represents the northern 10 10 tribes and uh, Judah represents the southern 2 tribes. So he's encompassing all of Israel Look what the Lord says about them. Your love is like a morning cloud. This is the picture that Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees to look back on and reflect on and hopefully they would see themselves there and repent. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Here today, gone tomorrow kind of a thing. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. And here's the passage that Jesus referenced. Verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In context, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I really really don't care about your outward show means nothing to me you don't know my father that's what matters you know about him but you don't know him and that's where he was sending the Pharisees back to to that Passage: The knowledge of God rather than sacrifice, rather than burnt offerings. If I were to to put this story in kind of our lingo, in contemporary language, this encounter with Jesus and Matthew and his text collecting friends and sinners, it might sound something like this from the book Vintage Jesus by Mark Driscoll. An example of Jesus' priestly work in the life of one person is found in Matthew 9, 9-13. We meet a man named Matthew, crooked thief and tax collector, who is despised by everyone. While sitting at his tax booth extorting people one day, none other than Jesus walks by. Rather than confronting Matthew as the prophet, Jesus surprisingly extends a hand of friendship to him by inviting himself to Matthew's house for dinner. Joining them later at the party at Matthew's house was nothing short of a very bad hip-hop video, complete with women in clear heels, dudes with their pants around their ankles, and handguns in their underwear strap. lots of gold teeth, bling, cheek liquor, and grinding to really loud music with a lot of bass. When word got out to the religious folks, they were perplexed. As to how Jesus could roll with such a jacked up posse. And Jesus' answer purely priestly he said they were sick and they needed mercy. And so am I. So are you. We are sick. And we need mercy. I want to ask the music team to come up. Something something to think about. Something to ponder here. Someone has said that the Bible... The Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is. That's a mouthful, let me say it again. The Bible is one long attempt to deconstruct our natural vision of who God actually is the truth is if I'm being real and if you're being real the truth is that Matthew the I'm just as surprised as you are disciple is really all of us yeah Jesus called me I'm a Jesus follower and I'm just as surprised as you are. Would to God that we could get to that point? Go figure. I'm just as surprised as you are. Me. He knows me better than I know me. He invited me to follow him. I'm just as surprised as you are. I don't get it. I don't get it that was then okay for those of us who are Christians right I get it he's forgiven me my Savior and Lord I I get that but man I still mess up so many stinking times what about now Jesus Jesus What about after salvation? What about those many, many times daily that I disappoint you? What about that? John, in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, speaks to that. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, or maybe we could say, but when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the world. When I said yes to Jesus some 40 years ago, His sacrifice on the cross. His blood was applied to my life. So that's the atoning sacrifice, right? Okay, then and there. I get that. But what about now? Jesus as my advocate. There's a difference between an intercessor and an advocate. An intercessor is a go-between between two parties. An advocate takes sides. Jesus is on our side when we accuse ourselves. Seriously, Bill? Again? Seriously? Or when the evil one accuses us, our advocate, the one who is on our side. Let me, I don't often do this. I need to read this to you. Check it out. When you sin, remember your standing before God because of the work of Christ. But remember also your advocate before God because of the heart of Christ. He rises up and defends your cause based on the merits of his own sufferings and death. Your salvation, hear this, church, your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula but of a saving person. When you sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. Jesus' advocacy speaks louder than your failures. Jesus' advocacy speaks louder than Satan's accusations. When Jesus' brothers and sisters fail and stumble... He advocates on their behalf. Why? Why? Because it is who he is. That's why. That's why. Maybe. Maybe that's what Matthew got. And maybe that's what we need to get a little a little bit more I just want to offer up a season of prayer right now I'm not going to talk a lot I don't know where you as a, as a brother or sister in Christ where are you at with this? like do you find yourself beating yourself up often? do you find yourself taking your Christ following life flippantly? where Where are you at? And for those of you who, this is like weird, strange stuff. Who is this Jesus, Rabbi? I invite you to dig deep. I invite you to answer his call to follow him. Wherever you're at, whatever your situation is, I'm going to give you a few minutes to just talk to Jesus.